Hello, this is Dr. Amy Lindsay, and I'm here to remind you that the information in this podcast is not medical or other professional advice. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only. You should not rely on anything you hear as a substitute for professional care by a doctor or other qualified medical professional who is familiar with your personal situation. Listening to this podcast may, however, give you a sense of belonging, make you spit take your coffee, realize that DJs can do more than play music, uplift you during a shit day, teach you that sometimes doctors swear too much, or remind you that you are not alone. So Amy, um, you, you were Mormon once. I was Mormon once. Yeah. Yes, I am no longer Mormon. <laughs> you know, I feel weird asking you this because something I've noticed is when people find out you used to be in the Mormon church, people have a lot of questions that need some answers. And you become the authority because you're no longer in the church and can give them some idea as to what the hell's going on over there. <laughs> so I feel weird asking this question, but I'm curious um, about if there, were, if there was any moment that jumps out at you where, because you left at an early age, I know that. So I'm thinking at an early age, was there something that happened that, that like helped that, Did you know, get, like give you the ideas that maybe this, maybe there's a different life for me. Yeah. You know, there is actually a defining moment. Yeah. And I was sitting in Sunday school and I was probably 10 or 11 and they had a guest speaker come in. So normally you have your Sunday school teacher, but it was the Sunday school teacher's friend, I think. Yeah. And she was a single woman at age 27. Oh my God. I know. You, and so that's not common. Nope. Okay. Especially not in my generation. It's a, might be a little more common now, but it's definitely, you know, you want to get married. That's like the number one thing. Right. And so if you're 27 and single, that's not good. Right. And she was telling us the story about climbing Mount Kilimanjaro in Africa. And I was mesmerized. I mean, this woman was my hero. I'm like, she's 27. She's not married. She doesn't have kids. She's climbing mountains in Africa. How do I do that? I bet that um, woman was really regretted bringing, <laughs> bringing her friend in to talk to all of you. Well, no, I, I don't think the takeaway from people was, I got to get out of this church. <laughs> I mean, that was my takeaway, but... Yeah, that backfired. Yeah, yeah. I, I just assumed the class all got up and all the women said, uh, no more of this and stormed out in my mind. Hey, 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 it's the doctor and the DJ, doctor and the DJ. On today's Doctor and the DJ podcast, we're going to talk about raising boys in white male America. We talk to best-selling author Ijoma Aluo. We're also going to learn a new word on Ask Dr. Amy, and that is epigenetics, at least a new word for me. Plus, we're going to be drinking delicious mineral water. On weekday one. And our music pick today is the album What We Leave Behind from Gabriel Teodros, an amazing DJ and musician out of Seattle, Washington. Church, now I'm a dropout. Never fit into they talk of boxes. I just walked out. Live on the fringes. Now I'm an outcast that they chat out. Walked on my own route. ET proud. Never had a doubt. Then battle many bouts. But no hobby shut around. I did it for So that woman climbing Kilimanjaro is definitely symbolic of maybe how you were feeling, right? Like that that you wanted to be more than maybe what the, the church was telling you you could be as a woman. Is that, where were you on that journey? Yeah, it was definitely, you know, I was turning into a little baby feminist, but it was bigger than that. 
you know, um, in the Mormon church, family is super important and having big families is super important and getting married to, if you're a woman, getting married to your patriarch, it's literally called a patriarch. Uh, so I'd be the patriarch? Yeah. Not in this marriage. Oh, that's yeah, cool. No, don't title. even, no, hey. no, nope, nope, nope. I didn't go down that road. Um, <laughs> and having children and maintaining your relationship with God in the church, that's the number one thing, right? And that's all great. You know, having a good marriage and having kids and like having your faith, that's all great. I'm not saying that's not. But for me, I always felt like, well, what else is there to do, right? It felt like if I am only getting married and having kids, like, I wanted a career or I wanted to be more of a, I wanted to contribute to life or participate in the public sphere. Does that make sense? Not just the domestic sphere, even though I have a lot to say about that. Like, I feel like the domestic sphere is super important. Was it clear from the church in, in the messages you were getting, was it directed at women? Did you, or was it what you saw around you or were they literally saying to you that that is your job as a woman? They're literally saying to you that is your job as a woman. Like, go to a good college so that you can meet your patriarch. Well, you 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 yeah. left left. The oh church. yeah, you I left left. You didn't just like, hey, I'm outie. Like that's it. See you later. I mean, you did for a while, but you got legally <laughs> removed because it turns out the Mormons keep you on their books. So when they say they have so X number of members. You were one of them. Do you want to know what the final straw was? What was it? What it was is the Mormon church came out and they declared basically that trans people were of the devil and that any child of a gay couple or anyone who identified as trans was basically expelled from their religion. That was it for me. I was like, okay, trans people are of the devil. You're not going to let kids of... Gay Mormons get baptized. I'm out. Like, no, this needs to be, I can't be on the books anymore. So this how, do you, is it. how do you get out of the books? Well, I followed the um, LGBTQ community and they basically marched on Temple Square in Salt Lake City and they did mass resignations from the church. So they had a bunch of lawyers draw up the documents that said all the right things, all the legal stuff that you have to say. And so a bunch of people in the Mormon community, LGBTQ or not, all did a mass resignation. And so I jumped on that. And then I got it in the mail. And I remember just like falling onto the kitchen floor when they had confirmed my resignation. Like the relief was huge. But the world as we know is all under a plague This 
album is lemonade made from songs forgotten pathways we made from being born at the bottom but a lack of faith in us has never been a problem All right, Amy, our conversation earlier uh, about Mormonism and how we're raising the boys and how you're raising the boys with uh, raising them the right way, we're hoping, right? Um, I think that goes right into how fucked was parenting this week. (laughs) And is it this week or, you know, I'm sure there was examples of it. So with uh, you, you had how many brothers? Ten. Ten brothers. And then we have two boys. That's right. So there's just boys everywhere. Um, and I, I can't imagine how that, that is for you. Um, but you feel very strongly that the first thing these boys need to do is domestic chores. Like they're, the things around our home come before all their responsibilities outside of the home, right? Yeah. So here's the thing. To survive, you need all the domestic stuff taken care of, right? Yeah. And, you know, this, this public sphere versus domestic sphere thing and our culture, the domestic sphere is primarily taking care of, of women. So women are doing all this free labor and then they go out to the workforce and a lot of women are the number one people in the domestic sphere, childcare, clean, like chores around the house. And they're also working. And especially during this pandemic. I just read something the other day, Amy. It said that women have a huge proportion of the unemployment. Uh, that more women are out of work by far than men during this time. Yeah, and now they're homeschooling their kids. That's right. Or if you you are still maintaining a full-time job, and so is your, if you're in a heterosexual marriage, and so is your male spouse, you are probably still doing most of the homeschooling and doing your full-time job and doing the cooking. And, you know, like, this is a thing. If you're trying to raise, then in this environment, if you're trying to raise your boys not to be Typical white male dudes. dudes. Right. And again, I grew up single mom. I, I, I had that experience of, of witnessing her, you know, by example. I think that helped. Um, but in like our situation or someone listening is thinking, well, how do I, if I'm raising two white male boys, what do we do to make sure this doesn't continue? Well, I think the first thing is it starts in the home. And I think it's really easy to enable your male children like give them all the grace in the world to do their homework or hang out with their friends. I mean, they can't hang out right now, but do their online stuff, right? And I am adamant that our boys do domestic duties and I make it as important as everything else. And that's that's just going to be a tiny little thing that I do. And that includes homework because what you're training them to do is you're training them that their work is more important than the domestic work. And so as a mother, you know, they've got dishes and sweeping and raking and (laughs) like laundry and doing their own laundry and folding clothes and vacuuming. And they have all these things that they're doing. And even if our kid has a project due at school, I make him like, I make him do the dishes. I'm like, no, the dishes have to get done. Did you eat the meal I made you after I just worked a full day? It matters what I do and how I raise them and how many conversations I have. And I do. I mean, I lecture the kids like at breakfast every day. (laughs) She does. But if the backdrop of society is constantly rewarding your male children, I mean, why would they not 
take the job and the promotion and the raise and the opportunities? Why wouldn't they? And so there's, they have to be essentially taught and raised that they need to like get out of the way sometimes and look around and have empathy and look at how they can build community and how they can build um, collaboration and how they can maybe be told no. Like, I think it's really important that we tell our kids no a lot. Like, no. Why? Because. Like, sometimes it's even because I do the no because I'm your mom. You want your kids to grow up and have everything they could possibly have. But the problem is, is when you're training them that they have every right to grow up and have everything that they could possibly have. You're not teaching them that they're stepping over people to get it or they're stepping on top of people to get it. And that that's not true for everybody and that they need to like scale back a little bit and like observe what's going on in our society, what's going on in the workplace. That includes women, that includes people of color, that includes everybody. So as part of parenting, Amy, then this has to be elevated as one of the pillars of how you raise your kids. Right. And I, and I think, um, we're imperfect people and our kids are imperfect and we're definitely imperfect parents for sure. And we're learning and growing at all times. And a lot of times we're publicly falling on our faces, you know, but that's the point is, you know, and teaching our kids that it's okay to have uncomfortable conversations and teaching our kids that it's okay to fall flat on your face and like fail forward as they say. But I think bystander awareness is one of the biggest things that you can do is how much are you allowing things to happen that shouldn't be happening and what are you doing about it? Or are you just so comfortable in your little world that you're turning your back completely? And, you know, our little boy, when he was in kindergarten, do you remember when we got a phone call that there was something that happened between like a handful of boys at the school and our kid was implicated in it. And it was just like, Oh man. Right. Like you hate getting those calls. You hate getting the calls. Like our older son was bullied a lot and we, we would get the calls that he was like pushed down a flight of stairs or something like that sucks. But to be honest, I think it's worse when you feel like your kid is implicated in something like your kid is the problem or is the bully. And what happened was there was some other kid saying racist comments to another kid and our kid was there and he didn't do anything about it and he was in kindergarten and I remember we got the call about how our kid was being um, taught about being a bystander and how he needs to say things like don't use put down words and he needs to stand up for the other kid and he needs to go tell an adult so our kindergartner was getting all this bystander training (laughs) in kindergarten which was awesome and at first it was like Oh, well, he wasn't the kid being racist. Right. And then you realize, oh. He doesn't know to he, stand up. And, and he was too scared. And he, yeah. and he was allowing it. That's right. And that's bad. That's right. And so as a parent and as a kindergartner, <laughs> he was learning about not being a bystander. And I thought that was awesome that the school did that. But, you know, this is what it takes. 
like in kindergarten, he needs to be just as responsible for being a bystander. Time is a construct, I is a construct If we could leave them both behind, wonder what we disrupt My legacy is not for me to try to define Feeling like Benny rustling, what we leave behind It's far beyond the stars out of sight But I'm grounded at the same time Surrounded by folks that show me all kinds Don't fit into a box, promise to cross all lines If it's safe enough to challenge and expand our minds Our guest today is Ijoma Aluo. She is the New York Times bestselling author of So You Want to Talk About Race and her latest book, Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. John, we're so lucky to have her on this podcast. And you work with her partner, Gabriel. Yeah, Gabriel and I are both DJs at KEXP. He's on before me now and does the show early. I just love Gabriel. I've always loved his music. He's an incredible human being and treasure in this city. In fact, all of us are here in Seattle. Ijoma, why don't we start off by having you tell us where you are in Seattle and where people can find you? Yeah, so um, right now I am talking in my partner's music studio in uh, uh, northern Seattle area. And um, technology-wise, most people find me, you know, on social, uh, everything under my name, Twitter, Instagram. Uh, but mostly right now I'm giving a lot of talks, I'm writing, and, you know, um, I'm on Zoom <laughs> like everyone else <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask you with the new book out, uh, Mediocre, and, and usually there'd be a book tour and there's, I'm sure you would have a huge, right? You'd be all over the country. You'd be mm-hmm. traveling. What has it been like the last year? Because you, of course, have, have been doing a lot of talks about your other book as well through this uh, through this time. So for you with this book, what's it been like? I mean, that's actually been a weird silver lining in a way. I mean, like it was weird, like opening night to, um, you know, I did my book opening event with, um, you know, for Seattle with uh, Megan Rapino, and we were at Langston and there was literally just like Gabriel, an engineer, you know, <laughs> like Tim Lennon. And I was like, oh, this is my book opening. You know? And we were like, waved goodbye, you know, <laughs> and that was, you know, that was it. And normally it would be, you know, a really big deal. And that was kind of sad. But also, I, I, you know, I've been talking to other writers who've had books come out this past year. Um, I don't know many writers that I, I would want to hang out with who got into writing because they're like, yeah, I get to spend time with people all the time. Like that's kind of the opposite of our personality. And so book tour can always end up being this, it's always like this grudging thing that comes along with the job. Like we love our readers. We love interaction, but going and traveling and speaking and you don't have time to write, you know, you're away from your family. So for this, it was interesting because when I sat down with my agent to talk about tour, it was really like, oh, well, we don't have a lot of the restrictions of like who's going to be in town in this particular date. And, you know, since we're just making it up, you know, what would be the best idea of a tour? So really what we did was I just made a list of people I love talking to, you know, that I thought, okay, around these topics, it would be fun. And then how can we make sure that it benefits, you know, um, people who don't often get to benefit from book tours. So we partnered with, you know, Black and Indigenous, almost all the bookstores we partnered with were Black and Indigenous. We sent, you know, signed copies out to all those stores. And so they got to host and get those sales. And then I got to have conversations, you know, with people that I really love. So that part was actually pretty cool, you know, and I didn't have to get on a bunch of planes and be away from my kids and, you know, all that stuff. So some good things have we've learned from this, I would say. I hate to be silver lining during a pandemic, but there are some things that maybe benefit our mental health 
And I think it's important for your mental health in times of crisis to actually be able to see what positive things lay there. I don't think it does anyone a service to reject, you know, the things that may help us get through this time or the lessons that can be learned, you know, um, even though it feels weird. I don't know, Ijoma, how you balance finishing your book, having your book <laughs> tour, raising your sons, you know, being a partner. Mm-hmm. Like, how are you balancing all of that? Well, hey, it's kind of all I've known, right? I, I got pregnant with my son when I was 19. You know, he came to college with me. Um, he graduated from kindergarten the day before I got my bachelor's, you know. Um, and I, I was, I've been a single parent for most of my children's lives. And I used to always feel really guilty that I wasn't doing enough. And I remember, you know, going to therapy about it and my therapist saying, you know, what I want first and foremost is to imagine what your kids are going to be going to therapy for when they're older with regards to their childhood. And it's not going to be my mom didn't sweep the floor every day or, you know, my laundry wasn't always folded. It's going to be, you know, the whether or not you had enough, you know, little meaningful interactions. And then they also said, you know, that we do our kids a disservice when we act like we're perfect because then they have this inherent sense of failure. And so explaining where you're at, explaining your quirks, explaining when you're too busy and just saying it like, this is a temporary time right now where I'm not going to have as much time. Can you work with me on this? I'm sorry about this. Or I don't like playing with cars (laughs) and and you're going to have to find someone else to play with cars, but we could do these other things some other time. Um, Let's your kids know that you're a whole person. And and by insisting on being a whole person and still finding time and space for them is important. And so, you know, by the time I started writing Mediocre, we had gotten to this point with the kids where I could tell them, you know, this week I'm going to need for at least, you know, six hours a day to have minimal knocks on the door. Um, and, and sometimes they don't care, <laughs> you know, like, um, snacks, mom, give me snacks. yeah. And, and they've kind of learned too, that if I'm working and I'm tuning them out, that, that to them is still an interaction that's great for them. Like I'm not a yeller. I don't snap. I don't yell. Um, and so, you know, Gabriel, I remember with the book was trying really hard to kind of be like, the the bodyguard to the door like be like hey you know um, what do you need i'll get it for you so that you know your mom can meet this deadline and malcolm would just look at him and walk right past and just sit there and be like mom you want to hear this cool song and i'm like no honey and i you know and he's like okay cool and he'd start playing the song and, and you know he's so used to me being able to tune it out but i think a lot of it is just realizing like if you can create the little moments you know that you remember as a kid connecting with your parents over, if you're regularly prioritizing some of that and letting go of the things that you realize don't really matter and letting kids know where you're at and why instead of just disappearing or just getting stressed and they don't know why you're stressed, um, I think makes a really big difference. You know, there were definitely where they were like, mom, is the book done yet? Can it be done? Can it be done? But knowing that there is a time where it's done, not saying everything will be perfect, but saying, you know, okay, when this is done, I'll have at least a little bit more time, we'll get to do these things. And then following through has helped, you know. But right now in the pandemic, I also find they just need privacy in a way that they, you know, can't get when we're always here. Like they don't, you know, realizing like your kids need space to like not do what you tell them to do, to do the things that you would, you know, that you remember doing as a kid when your parents went home, Um, you know, and you have to kind of let some of those things go 
and say, oh, okay, this is a natural, healthy thing that they would do if we weren't stuck at home together all the time. So, you know, sometimes I have to let them, you know, I'd have to let them fight a little and be like, okay, you know, sometimes I would watch them sneak, you know, food into their room when I told them not to. And I just have to let it go because I'm remembering like, if I was in the house 24-7, they would be doing this. And they're not on lockdown with me, even though we're all kind of in lockdown together, you know. Um, that's kind of how I've been balancing. Yeah. I mean, we we hear that a lot. <laughs> and and I love what you were saying about allowing your children to see um, your own needs and your own imperfections and that you're a whole and complete human being. You know, one philosophy I try to remember with my kids is that I can't take their pain away and that if I keep trying to take their pain away, I'm doing them a disservice. And mm-hmm. so in seeing their depression or their sadness with the pandemic and not seeing their friends, it's sort of like I can comfort them, but my job isn't to coddle them. Like my job is to allow their pain. And even though it's hard, you just want to fix everything and just allow it or they have to see my imperfections. Yeah. I, I think the, I think letting I, that really struck me, letting your kids not get away with stuff. That's wrong. But, but allowing, allowing them, like I wandered down, you know, I get up early too. And so I wandered down at like five in the morning because I had to find a, something warm to wear. And I come walking by, waltz by the seven-year-olds and I see this light coming from this like 5 a.m. I just walk in. He's just watching videos on the iPad. Like no one's seeing this. <laughs> and I had this thought like, oh, you're in so much trouble. I think, man, dude, this kid, this kid I mean, he's just doing what you do. So I just walked up, shut it. And I said, Hey, go back to bed. <laughs> I walked out. But if that had been non pandemic times, I may have been different. I think that, mm-hmm. um, I'm learning a lot. What I've realized recently, when you spend this much time with them, I feel like the quality time isn't there because you're doing all this work to get them through it. We're getting them through school. You're getting them through the pandemic, through social unrest, through everything that's going on, political insanity, everything that's just like hitting them. You're trying to talk to them. And so when they want to hang out and play, I'm like, yeah, no, I'm tired. And I think we may be as parents losing a little bit of our like special time with our kids. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I think like in the beginning, um, you know, we were very much like, how can we institute this time to try to make up for, you know, the social time, but then like life takes over. And, and I think, you know, there are absolute times where it's like days go by and, you know, we'll have our, our meal and immediately, like my 13-year-old, he'll scarf his food out and be like, bye, thanks, run down the door, right? Because he also wants some time. He's been on Zoom all day. He wants to talk to his friends, you know. And then realizing, oh, no, we still have to do that thing that we did before, which is, you know, harangue our children into spending a little time with us and, and clearing that out. So, yeah, that's definitely something, Gabriel, and I, like, at the beginning of this year, we thought about, like, okay, the lessons we've learned so far in this pandemic what do we want to keep and, you know, what do we want to take forward for this year? And one was just being really intentional. And I think, you know, we should have less time. Like we should let some of that pressure go because we do spend so much time. And part of healthy time is making sure kids get time alone as well. Right. But then also I think it sends a really good signal to kids to say, this is the time, right? So I have my 19 year old um, who lives like across the street from us. And then my 13 year old who, who lives at home. And, you know, so we say, okay, you know, at least once a week, Malcolm, you're coming over, Marcus, we're going to sit here. We're going to do a fun thing. What's the thing you want to do? And, and they spend time kind of figuring out what it is. And, you know, when we're working outside the home, we would definitely spend more time being like, it's a game night, or we're going to watch this movie together. 
um, at least they know it's really intentional and this is a time that we set forward. So they kind of like debate now about what the game we're going to do and stuff like that. And that helps. But I think we have to be easier on ourselves. You know? <laughs> like, we really do. I mean, uh, kids are resilient and they just, they want to know that we're okay, that we're hanging in there and that we're communicating with them. But I don't think we can design a perfect experience for our children through this pandemic. You know, I think, survival like pulling through with at least you know 80 percent of our faculties intact is going to be a great success can i transition a little just to your your family's reaction i'm sure to the amount of attention that you received too and and um after george floyd's murder after um the black lives matter protest and then i started to see your name just come up and up and up and up and referenced and your book on the uh on the bestseller list and does your family what was, how did they deal with that sudden attention? Were they used to that? Was your family prepared for that? Were you? You know, I would say for me, luckily because we're at home, it's it's still just as surreal to me as it probably is for everyone else because our day-to-day life didn't change a lot. You know, like no one can leave the house, you know, we're not going to places. Um, you know, I think just recently my younger son said that it's been kind of fun for him to mention my name to like teachers or you know other grown-ups he knows and now actually some of you know kids his age have started reading like so you want to talk about race and that's been fun and he's never said that before like I've, I've just been the most boring parent in the world to him before this so um but you know mostly for us it's been security concerns you know when 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 may and june hit for the kids the hardest part was just that you know Gabriel and I were two black people who were grieving, right? Um, we were first and foremost traumatized by, you know, the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd. So we were trying to hold space for that. And that was the hardest part for them. And then watching on top of it, my whole day was, um, you know, around talking around this. And so that really butted right up to the end of edits for my book. And, you know, and I had made these promises like, okay, when we're done, I'm done writing and researching on like violent white supremacy, then we're going to, you know, mom will be a little more fun. And then immediately it's like, oh no, never wait though. First I have to do a couple of months of nonstop interviews on, on violent white supremacy. And, you know, it was hard and it took, you know, it took me a while to realize I wasn't handling it well it wasn't functioning as well but for the most part for them it's just i mean they they weren't even i thought for sure the daily show would be a big deal and they're like, mm-hmm. like, like whatever mom yeah like i said i sent him the link and like my son watches the daily show every day but did he wait a few days to even get around to watching his mom on daily show yeah absolutely he, he, he was playing minecraft or whatever you know and that was it so it's just it's funny i think because nothing in our home has changed right you know um I mean, outside of everything that's been changing this last year, just because of our personal circumstances, like there wasn't this big shift where suddenly we were in like a mansion or anything. It was like, oh, it's the same. Well, no, in, in most cases, you don't have that happen and then have your house burned down. Yes. <laughs> you went a different route. Like, oh, yeah. I have a book on the New York Times bestseller and my house burned down. I will never forget that phone call I got from your partner. Uh, I couldn't even... Yeah, we couldn't wrap her. I mean, I still think about that day. And as Gabriel and I were both in our own ways trying to process what was happening, right? Like, it's it's still a surreal moment. It's still really surreal trying to figure out. Like, I was trying to remember our address calling, you know, and I couldn't remember it. Like, my brain stopped working. I could not remember the address to the house. 
um, Gabriel just kept asking mundane questions of the firefighters as they're trying to fight this fire. And we were just like, I don't know. And we're still occasionally be like trying to refresh details with each other, but it's been a year. Yeah. So I don't even know what to prioritize this year as far as how we're functioning, you know? Well, we were talking about the fire. And the other thing I wanted to talk about, you know, is, is being here in Seattle. You know, when I read your book, it was interesting to read it as a Seattleite. And when we first started reading it, I didn't think of it as a book with stories from Seattle. And I think that struck me more than I thought it would. The city I thought I knew, you were telling me a lot about that I, I really didn't, and, it, and that which was good. Um, and then the attention this city has received with the protests, with the police, was eye-opening to the country and people view it differently. I'm curious how you think Seattle was portrayed. How do you think that was covered? Do you think Seattle was represented correctly? I don't know the right word, but was it represented how you see it? What was interesting about the uprisings this summer was, I think if you look at the whole of the coverage across the political spectrum, you will find um, a lot of truths about Seattle and other liberal areas there, right? Which is that often the very legitimate concerns that people have and have had for a very long time people ignore and ignore and ignore until they kind of overflow and explode in this in this way and then the story becomes just about that that kind of explosion um and how quickly people kind of play into these platitudes and so many people were saying you know oh i care but it's not this and the controversy became about these occupied spaces and not about the actual words of, of black people in the Seattle area, um, you know, and black and indigenous people who are particularly vulnerable to state violence and, you know, structural racism in the Pacific Northwest and across the country. And I think looking at the, the realm of coverage and also looking at how many people who called themselves liberal Seattleites quickly found themselves kind of in the, uh, like Cairo space, right? The whole, what happened to our city? Where's our city going? And and just the thought of, you know, people who never even, you know, people who live nowhere near Capitol Hill, who live nowhere near, you know, any kind of occupied spaces, taking this as a direct threat, because all it was was a threat to their idea of the city and the centering of themselves. And I think that is very Seattle. Um, I think like the whole realm of it. And I think also how, easily we allowed city government to make promises and back away from them, mm. you know, and there were a lot of promises, you know, that the, that the mayor and the city council had made around policing, things like that, that were made and then quickly dialed down <laughs> as if, you know, they didn't really happen. And, and also the way in which the voices of long-term black activists, especially black women and femmes who have been doing so much work to, kind of keep our communities afloat and, and fight for progress for our communities for so long, we're really written out of the narrative. Uh, and that's a very Seattle thing to, um, to find the easiest way to try to dismiss people. And I think that people did that. And looking at, you know, how rarely we heard from, you know, voices like Nikita Oliver and others who've been working for a very, very long time, um, towards real equity and justice, you know, in order to focus on this controversy, because that's where the real threat to like white Seattle lived, um, was really telling. But I think also what's really important for people to realize that wasn't reported at all is what progress we did make, you know, where we were able to say, you know, get promises around the youth jail, 
um, get any sort of reduction in, you know, police budgets, um, you know, moving King County sheriffs to an appointed position. Mm. All of that was the, was not just a sudden thing. These are, this is efforts that were put, you know, have been long worked towards by long-term activists, um, especially, you know, black women for a very long time in, in the city. And, you know, we take our moments where we get them to, to get some promises, but the story was never that. The story has never been around what happened in Seattle about the people who made sure we had a plan in place and, and who wrote out the demands that we really, you know, that we had, that we've been working towards for a very long time, that never got to be the story um, of, you know, what we could actually do with this moment. It was just a story about how uprisings and discomfort and collective anger have disrupted what was previously thought of as a white utopia. And, and, and I think that's, that's while an inaccurate story, it's a very Seattle story. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, I would agree. And, you know, in your book, Mediocre, you're talking about the MLM of white supremacy. It's a multi-level marketing scheme by white powerful men for all of us, duping all of us. And then it's often um, black and indigenous women who are just constantly doing this work against that system. And then when everything blows up, it's, it's about everybody's reaction to um, the uprising. It's not about no, this has been going on for this long and these people have been doing this work for this long. What's funny to watch about this right now is the current conundrum we're in with this whole GameStop thing. So what's fascinating to me about this is the conundrum that I think our stock markets and the stock industry has right now, right? Because there's always been this idea with stocks that anyone could make it big, right? And that, you know, trying to hide how inherently like, brutal and unfair the the whole system is right um and and you know and really just you know how unjust the thought of like you know these multi you know billion dollar hedge funds and you know how much money is siphoned off of the work that people have to go to these corporations right and and also recognizing how often like hedge funds will play around to make money and actually destroy companies and jobs and how often that happens right because the idea is no if you're smart anyone can make it big and stocks has always been the story of this right and short selling has been the cause of ruination for so many businesses in our economy it's often thought of to be one of the leading causes behind the great depression and So what's interesting to watch is when a group of like predominantly white male nerds realize this inherent unfairness and decide they want to fight back and also get some of their own in this space. um, Now you have trading companies, you know, blocking these trades, right? And they're doing so, you know, in a way that has to become really public because the story is so big. And what's interesting to me is watching now you have people like Ted Cruz saying this isn't fair, even though he, of course, is incredibly aware of how stocks have always worked, how unfair they've always been. Um, And everyone knows that the market can't allow for that real promise that anyone who's smart enough and savvy enough can make their millions because there isn't enough to go around um, and it would just destroy the system. So they really can't allow this to continue to happen. But because it's predominantly everyday white men, they're having to stop. There's this outrage 
against this thing that we all knew was going to happen um, that I find really fascinating because it's kind of lifting the curtain off of this pyramid scheme, right? This idea that everyone bought into because it's like, oh, no, no, we can't. But this is probably, you know, one of the few times where it's been, they've really had to obviously step in on this free market and stop run-of-the-mill white men from profiting in the way in which the elite always have. Um, and because it's so public, a lot of people who have always made their money, made millions this way, have to act outraged because it's white men who are being impacted. And so it's just been so fascinating for me to watch this whole thing. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm not, it's not, it's not my stocks. I'm not, you know, it's just like, I'm an outsider watching this game, watching like this entire like white male battle as middle class and working class white men are realizing that the system has been gaming them as well. And they actually don't get to gain it back. And they've always been told they could. Yeah. I come from a Mormon family from Utah. There are 14 kids. There's 10 boys and four girls. So I have 10 white middle American middle class brothers. (laughs) (laughs) And they all play the stock market. And they are losing their money. And when I was reading your book, Mediocre, I was like, holy shit, this is my family, (laughs) especially when you were talking about the Mormons and their relationship to the federal government. And... And they think it's it, it's like their divine right or something. Like there's some sort of, at least in the Mormons and mm-hmm. in like any religion that uh, celebrates white male mm-hmm. dominance, um, they get to tie it in with God, right? Well, God created me in his image. Therefore, I'm entitled to all this. And, you know, my family, they don't, they don't understand Black Lives Matter. They don't understand all this stuff because why? Well, I worked hard. Mm-hmm. No one helped me. Blah, blah. They don't understand how all the ways they have been helped this entire time. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting you bring up the stock market because I literally have gotten texts from two of my brothers playing the stock market and they're all pissed off and like, what's going on? And, and they're texting me. I'm like, I don't care. (laughs) 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 It's hilarious. Yeah. Yeah, All my black friends, we're watching this. Like it's a sports game. We're just like, this is, it is hilarious. I mean, cause there's sheer panic. Oh yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it's panic. The whole system's being disrupted. And this is, again, where when the system was disrupted before uh, with protests, when there's physical disruptions, the loss of, of ability to even function was striking to me. Like mm-hmm. that, that people, so when we had the pandemic going on and Seattle's the first place where people died, <clears throat> where people were affected by this, we didn't really hear from our family. But boy, when, uh, when there was the, the Capitol Hill protests, and, and, and we live in West Seattle, which might as well be Tacoma. Like we're so far away from even that situation, right? That they're like, are you okay? Are they My burning My brother wanted down? to know if I was safe from all the crazy people on Capitol Hill, <laughs> right? You know. But nothing when the like pandemic and health and like this was more threatening to them. Yeah. I had so many white friends like that because I went a couple of times, you know, um, Gabriel and I went into the Chaz and walked through, talked to people. We knew people who had been reporting there every day. And the amount of people, like friends I would have from high school would be like, oh, you know, what can I tell my dad? Cause he's so curious, you know, he keeps calling me every day. Can you tell, tell me what it's like, you know, who just wanted to like, whose grandparents were calling them. And like, to look at the media, the way the media was reporting it, like it was wild. Like they were had people in there with like bulletproof vests and like, you know, just acting like, 
it was just ridiculous. It was so ridiculous. And, and it was, it was really gross, actually, too, because when you think about what we're talking about, right, our protests about black lives, and about the, you know, hundreds of, of black lives and hundreds of black lives, and the indigenous lives that are lost to, to police violence. Mm -hmm. And yet the real fear while we're walking through these streets, you know, vulnerable to state violence, the real fear was, is your, you know, white kid gonna encounter these angry people um, in, who are protesting for their lives? Like that was, it was so disturbing because we're literally fighting for our lives, you know, literally trying to do that. And, and then the fear was, oh, you know, what if my daughter wants to go shopping downtown? You know, we should be accosted by some angry protesters. You know, it was just, it was, it was so wild. And, you know, I, I don't understand. My sister lives in, lived in Capitol Hill right above it, you know. Um, and for her, you know, the, the real trauma was, A, their apartments being gassed every night, you know, with right. the rampant use of pepper spray and witnessing violence against the protesters. Like, that was the trauma for her. Um, it wasn't, I feel unsafe because someone, you know, staying at Chaz is going to attack me. It's I'm a black woman in this area who's going to get questioned by cops if I leave my apartment and I might get pepper sprayed, you know, and I'm having to hear screams from young people who are being harmed by police. It, for us, those protests for our kids were absolutely eye-opening. We're absolutely like, wait a second, you know, their world is you trust the police. Mm -hmm. They're there. Well, that's because you're a white kid. You know, they're learning that you you can because you are not going to just be discriminated against randomly at any, not randomly, but purposefully actually um, at any time. And I think for our kids, it's that exposure, those protests and what they saw wasn't what, what a lot of our family thinks they were being exposed to, mm -hmm. this like scary situation. The scary situation for our kids to see was that the police are hurting our friends. The police are hurting our community. I don't know if the Seattle police care, to be honest with you, but I don't know if they know that. Like the impact they're having on showing their true colors um, through this for a, a bigger audience, I will say, it has been life-changing yeah. for, for many people, for kids growing up. And I think a lot of people thought like liberal Seattle would mean that we had liberal police. Um, right. yes, which is yes, exactly. hilarious. And, you know, and, and so far reports are showing that the largest contingency of police officers who participated in the coup attempt on the Capitol came from Seattle, Seattle PD. I saw that. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't shock me <laughs> at all. Yeah. Um, you know, one, because majority of our officer of Seattle PD officers don't live in Seattle. Um, right. And two, like it is such an insulated culture of us versus them in that space, you know, that I've, I've witnessed firsthand. If you listen to the Spog talk, if you watch them online, and for years I've been kind of following the language come out there, this, you know, people, it, it cracks me up how people talk about Black people as if we love being victims. Go to a police union chat board or a Facebook page and wow, like the posts of like, someone looked at me, you know, weird when I went to McDonald's, they must hate cops, you know, and you're just like, or, you know, maybe they're afraid of you because, <laughs> or maybe they're busy or, yeah. you know, <laughs> that day, but like the, the absolute like self-victimization coming out of a force that's supposed to, that's armed, you know, <laughs> that's supposed to be protecting us has been, you know, shocking. And I think it's really interesting how personally Seattle PD has taken the fact that they couldn't indiscriminately attack protesters on camera for weeks 
and they thought they were going to come out the good guys in this and and i and mm. that's not what happened and they're really stunned by it and it always just cracks me up because you know i get reached out to by police departments regularly right um people who i'm sure not even engaged really with my work but just hear my name and you know everyone likes to do these kind of platitudes and say we're going to pull in a, a speaker on race we seem like we're doing something and it's so interesting to hear from police departments because you know they are not willing to do the work or hear the work and i will talk to someone we'll do preliminary talks and they'll say oh we care about this and then you watch any bit of accountability or any kind of bit of truth come through and they're just stunned where did this come from <laughs> i don't understand you know and it just it cracks me up because i do i literally get you know i get emails and letters from police officers from police chiefs saying you know we love your work you're making me a better officer and then there's this you know i'm like I'm not, though, because you'd be doing the work right now. You wouldn't be shocked by what you're seeing, you know, but right. It's still this. There's such a weird disconnect, you know, and and I think everyone who does this work like seriously has noticed that You know, I've been pulled into Seattle PD. They've done the whole tour. Come come see our offices. Come see, you know, how great we are. And they've done, you know, and they've left memes about police shootings up on their computers and left anti-Obama stickers up on their locker room doors and, you know, taking me to their gun range to show them practicing shooting. And then they're like, see, you know, we're great. Like, what, what, what am I looking for here? What's, what, what are you trying to show me? What? I'm not seeing. Yeah. You know, I think about this a lot with my family and then in contrast, how I want to raise my two very white sons, mm -hmm. right? And so, and trying to raise them aware, and I find that a lot of it has to do with emotional maturity or immaturity. That, you know, this lie of, you know, your pyramid scheme, mm -hmm. that you're going to be powerful and rich, but you're also rewarded for aggression and dominance and not crying and not being emotional and, you know, not actually developing emotional maturity, you can't handle people. You can't handle relationships. You can't handle conflict. You can't handle anything. Mm -hmm. And so by the time you're a grown-ass man, you're still like a 13-year-old angry kid in a 40-year-old body. And then that person then turns to becoming a cop or, you know, someone in power, a CEO or whatever. And it's just this childish anger and emotional immaturity just constantly abusing everyone in their way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. I see it all the time. And it's such a weird, like if I was the parent of white boys, I would be insulted by how little society expects of them as far as being like whole you present empathetic human beings. Like the thought that your kid can't handle basic accountability, can't handle sadness or rejection, right? Can't share um, spotlight or support other people, even if it doesn't immediately benefit them. The thought that your children are doomed to being so emotionally stunted and so cut off from so so much of the world like why would you want that for your child and you know i've been a feminist my entire cognizant life 
uh, you know, been anti-racist. And part of it actually comes from this optimism, this basic, you know, I refuse to let go of the idea that human beings can grow and change. And it's never, people always like to call me and people like me angry and, you know, and say, you always see the negative. And no, actually, we see the reality and we recognize the potential and you get you get angry and you get upset when people keep trying to convince the masses that change isn't possible, that you'll fall apart, that you would just die if you had to find a different way of relating to people and a different way of moving through the world. And I just refuse to believe. Like, if we don't believe that there are personality characteristics and abilities handed down by race and gender, then we also have to dismiss the idea that white men are incapable of growth and change. And so with that, it doesn't mean we coddle it. It means that we expect more and we demand more. And I would say anyone who, who loves white men has to recognize that but like your your son will be okay and it's actually better if if there is accountability on them when they start screwing up early than letting them be you know 45 50 and realize that they can't act the way they've been acting their whole lives right but the more that you can show that you believe in the white men in your lives by holding them accountable and expecting them to be, you know, full partners in relationships, full partners in society, to be empathetic, to, to contribute to the collective, you know, and to stop trying to dominate everyone around them, then the better off they'll be. Do you, do you think the men in the book you write about, the, do you think they're capable of picking up the book first off and, and next reading it and seeing themselves in that? book. I mean, I think you get these threats by people who maybe haven't even, I mean, read the book. Just the fact that you would take on white males. Do you think there, is there a percentage or, or do you have hope with your optimism that they will, because I want them to. Yeah. How do you feel? I mean, I think that, uh, first off, I don't think there is a white man who's exempt from this, right? I think there's bits yeah. of it in every white man. And, and I think that anyone who's in relationship, whether it's professional, romantic relationship, whatever, with white men, you have a task. <laughs> like you have a, that, <laughs> it, that is there, that is present. Um, yes. No matter how lovely or, you know, and I've met <laughs> white men who are very aware something is wrong, right? And, and, and right. see it in themselves and they're fighting that battle. We all have these ba different battles we fight. Um, I, you know, I, don't, I never imagined like, the dudes who are threatening me then picking up my book one day and being like, oh, totally different. But what I will say is that we give people spaces to normalize their behavior and we give people collective social meaning and by saying, you know, what is allowed and what we connect over and what we reward. And my goal is to not only take away the acceptance of this harmful behavior from the collective, and say, no, no more. You don't get to actually come to work and exhibit this behavior and be rewarded for it. You know, I'm not going to raise my kids when we reward this. We're going to have conversations when this shows up in our television shows or our movies. You know, we're going to work towards this and we're going to make, you know, our laws and our systems work differently so they don't reward this behavior. That's one part of it. The other part, though, the, the plea is to find something else to invite white men to be a part of. And that has to happen within whiteness. Like, I can't do that. It's, it's about whiteness together, right? Because everyone in whiteness especially carries the white patriarchy and saying, okay, no, let's, let's, let's offer another thing. Cause there is a cult to it. Right. And especially if we look at like the actions in the Capitol, we look at this coup attempt 
you see this kind of cult-like behavior, right? Where the, the, and the only thing offered up that gives you belonging and purpose and sense of power is this violence. So what does it look like to create an alternate belonging, you know, an alternate sense of power and purpose that's not inherently harmful? And that's what I hope people reading the book will find. And that will pull people in eventually. But like first you have to recognize what the problem looks like. So my book is first and foremost, just a diagnostic, just saying, let's get used to looking at this because I think we're so far behind on actually seeing that it exists. Yeah. It reminds me of when I think about health in general, there's an addiction to white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And the first step is naming it. <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, and I'll say this to people about their health, or I'll say this to patients that if you don't add something in to the thing you're trying to root out, then weeds continue to grow. Is the next step learning that it's harmful, right? Like you could be an addict all your life. But if you don't realize, you know, if you're a white male, it's like, well, it's not hurting me. You know, I'm, everything's great in my world. Like you have to learn it's harmful too. Isn't that part of, of, you know, yeah, I mean, that's I what I've for, learned too. Yeah, absolutely. And I would say for recovery from anything like this, right. Accountability is a huge part of it. How you maintain connection to people. Right. And people talk about like, um, you know, why people join cults and often why people get trapped in cycles of addiction, right? It's it's the lack of connection in day-to-day life and seeking connection and finding it in very unhealthy spaces. And I would say the way in which we've set up white male culture, which is you're going to dominate everyone else and your, your idea of success is how much better than other people you are, how strong you are, how independent you are, how little you actually cooperate with other people. You're a prime candidate, especially if the accolades don't come, the money doesn't come, mm. you know, the actual power doesn't come, then you're, you've isolated yourself playing this game, and then what, right? And so then you collectively you start meeting up with other people who say, well, you can be angry, you can be angry with me at these people, we could, we could band together and get back at this imagined enemy. And so, you know, part of like, getting back into a healthy collective is recognizing um, not only that you have a problem, but the harm that you've done and, and healing that and, and recognize that you're accountable to the harm that you've done. And that's all a huge part of it. You know, I don't know anyone who's been able to, you know, come out of spaces and ignore the harm that they've done and actually say that they've really fully come out of it and grown past it. Uh, but that also means you have to, people have to have a space to go. And it also means like, like collectively, if you were, you know, if you had, you know, if part of the reason why people are into this space is because as a society, you've taken all other spaces away or you've told them this is the place to go, you have to recognize your culpability in that as well. And so, you know, what we have like in, in, in white society across gender lines is really this, you know, enforcement of harmful white male behavior um, that really does push and punish, you know, and I've heard from, you know, from from white men who've said, yeah, it's not only my classmates would tease me if I didn't act this way. It's not only this was the only definition of success given, but it was also, you know, my mom telling me, toughen up, you know, this isn't, you know, the way that you're supposed to act. And so we have to look at that, you know, and recognize and and how many times we tried to get accountability and there would be white women who would say, no, you don't, you're going to take away my son's only chance at success or my husband's only chance at success, or I need that paycheck from him, or I need, you know, I'm emulating him and I have a, a relationship, a work relationship with this person. And so they can't be held accountable for what they've done and recognize collectively, like where we've been encouraging it. Yeah. As a white feminist lady myself, when I left my family's religion 
and I left Utah and I left the concert. Like I betrayed my family like three times. I moved, I gave up the religion and I got rid of the conservative ideals, right? So that's like three betrayals of my Mormon family, right? And, you know, when people always say, I don't understand how white women continue to vote against themselves. I don't understand. And I'm like, oh, I can tell you. <laughs> it, it's their relationship to the men in their life, and, and it benefits them to continue to uphold white supremacy. And then you see the white feminists who have been working so hard to get what the white dudes have that they're more than happy to squash everybody on the way up because they think it's their turn. But it's, it's the sort of like white feminists need to be like, hey, you know, you're just doing the same thing. You're just doing it in a skirt or in heels or whatever, you know. Yeah, and I think like that's where an exercise, even in anti-racist work, this is something when I'm talking, um, you know, with other black people, other communities of color that I always say is, is valuable to do, which is imagine what liberation actually looks like. Like a lot of times we, we can become very aware of obstacles that are stopping us from surviving or, you know, or getting that promotion or feeling like we can support our families or walk safely in the streets, right? We, we can become aware of obstacles, but often we don't spend enough time saying, what is our actual goal? What could liberation look like? And so I always, I try to tell people, imagine if you woke up tomorrow and the white, white supremacist patriarchy disappeared. Then what? What would you want? What would you build? Um, what would you do if nothing you did was in reaction to it? If nothing you did was measured by it, what would you build? And oftentimes people really draw a blank. And I'd say that's where a lot of times our movements can really come up short because what we, what we do when we don't think about that is we substitute the only ideas of success we've been given, which often duplicate white patriarchy. And then we imagine it will be where I can get that promotion. I can be the head of that capitalist, you know, thing. I can have the power. I can tell people what to do. And it's really more of a reaction to the situation and a mimicry. And so we have to, we have to be more imaginative. You know, I, I was talking to Nora Jemison a couple years ago and, you know, she's a, a, a speculative fiction writer, a black speculative fiction writer, you know, the most, the most awarded um, speculative fiction writer in general, alive today, probably. Um, just amazing woman. But she was talking about, you know, what it means to imagine a new future and how important that is to liberation. And I think that uh, white women, especially for so long, have just defaulted to their definition of liberation to be to being able to live as white men would. Uh, that they haven't paused to realize that they have within themselves the capacity to imagine something truly liberating. And if you don't do that work, you will find that you're just going to be mimicking these same harmful patterns. And that's something that, you know, we all need to do um, as we fight for liberation. I love it. It's like the garden, you know, you can't just keep pulling the weeds. Yeah, the same thing will keep growing. Yeah. You need to plant the new plant you have to, and you have to figure out and imagine what that is. Mm -hmm. Hey, Joma, I was going to, uh, we're going to uh, let you go. You've been very generous with your time. Thank you. Um, and I was sort of looking, you know, we turned this corner on 2021 and everything's supposed to be better now. Like, that's what I was, I was sold that. I read it on a tweet or something like, this is it, we're good. Trump's out of office and we're kind of, you know, on our way, the pandemic's going to end. Um, and, you know, we're still dealing with a lot of those things. Um, what are your, just, you talk about being an optimist and, and, and leaving on, on a note of, of 
of what you hope to see or what you think you might see in a, on a positive, I don't know, view of 2021 in general. It could be anything. It could be this pandemic or I'm, I'm starting to see a little light. Mm-hmm. So I'm starting to ask people, I haven't asked up to this point. I think this week is the first week I've talked to coworkers mm-hmm. and family like, hey, what are you looking forward to? Or what do you, you know, and sometimes it's to hug someone, you know, but what do you see in your 2021 as, as something you're looking forward to or optimistic will happen? Yeah. Um, you know, I am looking forward, hopefully to start to see through if we take advantage of the current moment politically we're in, um, Mm -hmm. to reaffirming through policy, our, belief in the fundamental worth of marginalized populations, disabled populations, populations of color, queer, trans people, uh, poor people, incarcerated people, undocumented people um, through policy change. And I think we have that opportunity right now. And I, and I hope that we can see that because I do think, you know, there are, of course, the real concrete impacts and loss of what previous administrations have brought, but also there is that psychological battering of hearing over and over again from all of the people that are supposed to represent you that you either don't exist or you don't matter or you're the enemy. And um, I look forward to having that weight lifted a little bit, right? It is nice to wake up and not hear from our highest office. <laughs> you know, someone wants, <laughs> is out to get us um, and, and looking forward to that. And then I would say just on a personal level, you know, I'm looking forward a, to spring. I think we forget like what fall and winter has been doing to us, especially here in the Pacific Northwest, this long gray grossness where I am looking forward to feeling a little less like I'm going to be losing people to this, pan- as many people to this pandemic, getting outside in nature, walking around, starting to feel whatever this new, I, I don't even want to say new normal is, but looking at what we can do as a community to try to heal. Like I'm looking forward to therapy and processing and trying to figure out what I need to learn from this last year and, and carry carry forward. That's, those are kind of, you know, my goals right now, like long-term therapizing. Yeah. And one last question. Mm-hmm. Um, you've mentioned that at some point you would love to write about something other than anti-racism and you've mentioned science fiction. Yeah. Um, so I love sci-fi. Um, I'm sure Gabriel would love it if I wrote sci-fi because he writes sci-fi, but he's the, he's the sci-fi guy. Um, I, I do have murder mysteries are my great love and I have fun, weird fiction ideas in my head that I've had for years. I would love to sit and write. I have probably, I have one more anti-racist book in me right now. I mean, in everything I do, I guess it's going to be inherently black and therefore inherently political in some way. Um, but this one I think will be a much more like personally rewarding, a lot less taxing. And then, and then, yeah, I want to like, I want to be in a workshop and, you know, be the worst writer in the workshop, (laughs) you know, like I want to just, I want to hear people be like, Joe, this doesn't work at all, you know, and, and work forward on my quirky ideas that have been sitting in my head for, for years. Um, yeah, I look forward to that. Awesome. I love it. I look forward to reading it. <laughs> It'll still be better than a lot of us would write. So I look forward to it. Well, thank you for spending some time with us. It was really good to talk to you. Thank you. And um, well, I was gonna say give my best to Gabriel, but I'm gonna see him in yeah. like, you know, a few hours. A few hours. So. <laughs> I'm gonna mail your books to my family. We'll see what happens. <laughs> she is. That's great. Thank right. you, I Joma. did get my mother to read Michelle Obama. Yeah, oh. she did. She got her seventy seven year old mother to read Michelle Obama's oh, book. The seventy seven year old Mormon lady who's voted Republican all her life, that was a major step. So, you know, well, there if is anyone hope. can do it, it's Michelle. She's a- that's, that's right. right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs>
If you never win, then you never gon' go Out your head, out your bubble, or your useless books To the slums and the hood that the first world took from And never gave back to these drums Or all I'm gon' react to, no funds But I still build brand new bridges, visions Transcend limitations They emulate every fake mistral Whatever America presents you I'm an alternative native Hated by a colonist Loved by the obvious follower Experience living in balance with land and life Understand my experience as a high school dropout Never copped out, been tossed out Won a couple times and spiked these and rhymes brought me to places I never would have imagined being seeing me in every hood in the world. All right, we're listening to some more Gabriel Teodros from his pretty amazing album called What We Leave Behind. You heard Gabriel referenced a few times during the Ijoma interview, and they may be my favorite couple, Amy, uh, not just in Seattle. They may be my favorite couple on earth right now. They're pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> they've been through a lot, <laughs> and they both inspire me very, very much. All right, now's the time we get to ask Dr. Amy. Although I'm asking you, Dr. Amy, what do you want to talk about today? <laughs> we didn't work this out in pre-production because we were living our life that we talk about on this podcast. Well, I want to talk about epigenetics. Okay. I do you know what epigenetics I are? I can't even spell it, uh, but go ahead and tell me. So epigenetics is basically the study of external stressors on our genes, like hmm. on our DNA. And so this is a fairly new scientific field, but, you know, it's like at least 20 years old, at least. And they're finding things like, guess what? Stress impacts our transcription in our DNA. It doesn't change the sequencing of your DNA. You are stuck with that. But it's influencing how and if certain genes are transcribed and therefore expressed. The long and the short of it is... External stressors, including environment, emotion, toxic chemicals, family, our birth mothers, all these things impact our physical health do and mental mean, health for that. Do you matter. mean the current things happening in my lifetime, in my years on earth have affected that? Or I have inherited from my family members those things that happen to them as well? Yes. Both, both of those things? Both. And how far back do we think that goes? Well, at least three generations, at least. Wow. So, for example, your Great eggs grandma. and your sperm, okay. right, are super impacted by environmental stressors and toxic chemicals and things like that. So, okay, okay I'm going to try to explain this. Okay, you got to follow. Okay, I'm going to make Ready? Notes. I'm going to write notes. I personally... My genes and my genetic coding and my physical health and mental health has been influenced by my grandmothers because, so if my grandmother was pregnant with my mother, my mother as a baby embryo and fetus in my grandmother had all of her eggs. Mm -hmm. If something super stressful happened to my grandmother... Or she was exposed to some super toxic chemicals. She was like a downwinder or something. Or it even, it's like lifestyle too. Diet and exercise and all those things. Those impacted my mother as the baby, but also the ovum, the eggs in my mother. And then I am a product of my biological mother's ovum. So it's like imprinted on me. 
Okay, I follow. <laughs> I would think that it would go back even more generations, though, because isn't it continued to be connected, or does it? Is it? I get. I don't know what the right term is. Does it thin out? Like it? <laughs> it loses as you further you go back. It sort of fades. Right, but then there's new stressors, right? Right. So, like my grandmother's stressors, and were and everything from emotional stress to the environment she lived in to any toxic exposure to diet, lifestyle, all that stuff is imprinted on my mother and my mother's eggs and then therefore printed on me. But as we go on, generation after generation, anything that we're exposed to is also affecting us. So this this is, I mean, this is huge. If, if you look at it from race, um, the impacts on non-white people are huge. The traumas that they've experienced not just now, but in past generations compared to like my family, a, a white family saw probably nothing even close resembling that. So they're inheriting. I don't think that's the right word. I don't know. They're inheriting. The, yeah. The, they're, these genetic imprints. Okay. So these genetic imprints then, mm-hmm. they are not just dealing with all the shit that has this going on right now, but the shit their parents and grandparents dealt with. And if you start doing math in this country, those are pretty significant um, over the last hundred years, let alone the last you know yeah. four hundred. So there's collective trauma that happens in groups of people, right? So you can go back to like the Native Americans in this country, <laughs> the collective trauma that's gone on there. So there's this collective trauma, but then anything that's going on now as well. So if you're if you're downwind of some toxic chemical plant, okay, my mom, she was downwind from Han- yeah. Hanford Nuclear Plant, and she was a downwinder. Mm-hmm. Right. What do I do? Is that, is that a thing? Like, can you, can you fix it? <laughs> can you, <laughs> do I go to the gene store and get some new genes? Like, what do you do? Is there a thing you do? Or is this just where I'm at or where well, we're all at? It, it just speaks to, you know, my philosophy of the and both, right? You hit it from all angles. Health, as you know, and I've said this a thousand times, it's not just physical health, it's mental health, but it's also spiritual health. But it's also the health of our environment, the health of our planet, the health of our social communities. The whole thing during this pandemic about racism is also a public health crisis. And that is true on so many levels. I mean, so many levels. So the health of our social structures is also important. Like it's an and both. You don't go to the jean store and get new jeans. You've got it, you know, eat your vegetables, drink your water, and... Like that's not going to, that's not going to fix the downwinder syndrome. Right. But, you know, and fight for racial justice and fight for, you know, food equality and climate change and all these things. Well, it's funny, you know, I, I, yeah, I guess I knew this in some way, you know, you just hear those things about, well, my dad was an alcoholic and his dad was an alcoholic. So I'm probably going to be an alcoholic, you know? So I think about my dad's side and then my mom, my mom, I love my mom, but you know, she was a smoker who also was a downwinder who, you know, so I, I guess that's why I'm vegan and, you know, run and do yoga. And maybe I just feel like I'm doing everything I can to make sure that those things don't kill me. Well, I like the term risk reduction. There you go. I Uh, love that term rather than prevention, because here's the truth. There are so many people with such uphill battles of things that are not their fault. And I think sometimes in the wellness community, 
we really put it on the person. Well, you're not eating the right diet and there's all this orthorexia going on. Orthorexia is when you're super obsessed with a certain diet being like, oh, I'm keto. Oh, I'm paleo. Oh, I'm whatever. Right. And that idea that it puts it on the individual to fix their health. The wellness community is really hot on that, right? Because it feeds consumerism. Like I'm going to buy all this stuff to like be healthy. And I'm not saying that like things like diet and exercise don't help you because they absolutely do. Absolutely. hundred percent. They do nutrition, exercise, movement, stress reduction, all that stuff helps. But it's super important for people to realize that there's so much that has happened to people and it is not their fault. And we need to work as a community of human beings to try to, you know, help each other and have that compassion. And you saw this with when the pandemic hit, people were apathetic towards older people dying. Well, weren't they like 90? That was someone's mother or someone's grandmother or, well, they were unhealthy. So they died. Oh, well. You know, and like that resistance towards mask wearing and the resistance towards social distancing and like, oops, not my problem. Yeah, what almost caused me to just turn off social media forever was seeing some person post about a death in their family about COVID. And I would see comments and I don't know, I just assumed she was getting some kind of love. And the first comments were like, what was their health like? Were they high risk? Did they take care of themselves? What did they do wrong? And I was, I couldn't believe that that would be your response to someone dying. Yeah. I've had patients crying in my clinic saying, I, I ate organic food. I drank water. I, I exercised and I still got cancer, you know, as if, you know, like I said, those things are a piece of the puzzle, but they're a piece of the puzzle <laughs> and they can reduce your risk, but they don't guarantee, you know, there's so many other things that are so much stronger. There are some, you know, some people have straight up genes that are predisposed to something like that, that no matter what you do, you are at a very high risk, right? So it's not their fault. So our word of the day, Dr. Amy, is risk reduction. Although I, is that- Well, epigenetics. Is that two words? Risk reduction and hashtag shame is not medicine. That's a lot more words, but all very important words. Thanks, Dr. Amy. Yeah. These songs shouldn't even exist I grew up in a house without instruments But took whatever we had to make music with It's not what you're giving, but what you do with it It's not those have-nots, had to learn that quick But in years, top ramen was our only dish We learned to remix every single thing in the fridge And share anything we had with every neighborhood kid With half of East Africa, had a key to our crib So I learned a village isn't just a place you live But a way of being that you carry with Over oceans and cross old continents We are not lost souls, but we are a bridge Broke language, we carry traditions in Old lyrics our bodies we written in at my best it's not me i'm just listening there's ghosts in my pen that won't let me go they take hold of my body till i press record a living echo of what came before ancient dreams that have changed the world we weren't supposed to make it i pray for guidance now it feels like the real ones are dying out there's no room for ego no time for doubt i'm trying to carry on the legacy i learned in my mom's house some more gabriel teodros amy by the way Gabriel Teodros does a great show on KEXP. You should check it out. It's 5 to 7 Seattle time. It's called Early. I used to be on 6 to 10. I'm now on 7 to 10. He comes on right before me. Gabriel is doing uh, some radio that I believe has never been done before. It is it is incredible, his mix. And the artists that he plays and exposes our community to are incredible and sometimes getting airplay nowhere else. 
and he is a, he says, uh, the medicines and the music every morning. So when I'm coming into the station, I'm hearing Gabriel Teodros playing kick-ass music and saying, there's medicine in the music and the music is medicine. Now that goes right with this podcast. So we kind of had to have his music here. Annie Joma, his partner, uh, is also part of the podcast. So Gabriel, shout out to you, man. Uh, I just love what you're doing. And that leads me right into our segment, Amy. What are we drinking this week? Weekday wine with (laughs) Topo Chico. I think Amy's keeping the weekday wine. I keep making up a new title for this segment. I like what we're drinking or weekday wine. And yeah, we're going non-alcoholic mineral water today. We also would like to uh, shout them out, Amy. This is the podcast's first real sponsorship because we did not pay for these. Okay, this is a new era, Amy, in Dr. and DJ podcast. Uh, this is the first free shit that we've gotten. So shout out to you, Topo Chico. By the way, they have been nothing but awesome at the places that we're involved with. Uh, Life on Mars, they've been great with our bar, uh, especially during the band. KXP. KXP, they always drop they drop off cases of water for all of the bands that would visit KEXP. Again, during the pandemic, they haven't been able to do that. And they also do this with touring bands as well. So uh, we haven't uh, seen money from them. So this isn't a paid sponsorship, (laughs) but they did (laughs) hand me this bottle of water. So I'd like to thank them. And one of the other reasons, Amy, is just, I don't know how to put this. I I know a lot of people are feeling it, but I'm A, just done with this pandemic. I just, I think I'm canceled. I think it's canceled. It feels like we're trapped. We are trapped. Yeah, I guess it doesn't feel like that. We are trapped. You're right. And then it felt like there's some hope, and then you feel trapped again, and there's hope, and you feel trapped again, and you're trapped again. And I am definitely at the end of a day, with everything that comes with it, not just the pandemic, but everything that comes with it, Amy, it it, it causes me to just be just wrecked uh, sometimes by the end of the day. I'm just like, I feel good when I'm in the day, and I'm getting my work done, and making a contribution, and you know, we'll record this. We're like, yeah, we got the podcast. It's sweet. All right, we're doing it. And then half hour later, I'm just, oh my God, what are we doing? I can't get, I haven't seen anyone in this many years, this many days, what feels like years. And then a lot of the times I'm turning into alcohol. And again, we talked about this in an earlier podcast. And then you start thinking, can I not get through an evening without this? Like, is this, um, and one of the things that we do is we drink bubbly water. That's our big treat. We drink a lot of bubbly water. And you know what? To be honest, a lot of people I know who take the sobriety path, yeah. they kick their alcohol habit with, they replace it with sparkling bubbly water. Because <laughs> yeah, I'm not... Because not, not, it's not just water or it's not just tea. It's like there's a little more action going on. Yeah. I have some friends who do some drinks that are non-alcoholic and I, I'm not a big mixed... I'm not a huge mixed drink person um, unless I'm in my own bar then I'm a huge fan of it. But I... So I don't go that route. So yeah, I just need... Again, it's the it's the ritual it's of the needing ritual. some sort of treat or yeah, sitting down with a glass of something. Yeah, and and it's yeah, it's it just it feels like an escape in an unscapable situation. If I have these drinks, I feel like I'm you know I'm having this bottle of wine. I tend to go that direction, and I'm you know I'm I'm enjoying something that was made. You know, it took years to get here, and then it tastes warm. And I'm talking to my my amazing wife here. <laughs> we're we're like having a nice night. The kids are asleep. We don't ever drink in front of them. Um, so it just feels like I won something that day in a time where it just feels like we're not winning very often. Yeah, that's true. I call it, and I just made this up right now, okay. but I'm going to act right. like another, this is what I call it. Another word of the day. Right. A word of the day. Um, I call it the pandemic creep. 
Mm. Right. Like it's this slow creep where you forget you're in a pandemic. You have some sense of normalcy going on. Like you're in the moment, either with your work or with your kids, or I don't know, you went to the store and it's so normal now to wear your masks and wipe everything down and to have limited people and to stay six feet away from everybody. And that's become normal ish. And then you're running up against that wall. There's like a pandemic wall and it creeps in on you where you can't remember or figure out why you're so frustrated or why you feel so cooped up or why your kids are driving you nuts or why you can't seem to be as productive as you normally are. And it sort of creeps in, right? And, and something like drinking also creeps in, right? Because, you know, you and I will do that. We'll be like, we won't drink for days on end and we'll get lots of sleep and we're feeling great. And this is the future. And this then, is what yeah, we're doing. Yeah. I feel great. I'm not drinking on the weekday anymore. And like tonight we're drinking our Topo Chico and we're like, yeah, we're going to sleep well. And, um, and then it creeps in. You're like, Oh, let's have a glass of wine. It sounds so great. And nothing wrong with that. By the way, I, there's no, there's no shame in any of this. This is all normal behavior. And you have your glass of wine. You're like, Oh, it's really great. And then you think, Oh yeah, I'm just, you know, every once in a while I'm going to have my wine. I'm going to be a mindful drinker. That's a whole thing, being a mindful drinker. And, and then it's like fast forward two weeks and you are like, you're done. You're like burnt out. You're so sick of the pandemic. You're so sick of the kids. Like you're stressed with your work. You're, you know, you haven't taken any time to yourself because everyone's living on top of each other. And next thing you know, like you're drinking every night again or something. <laughs> And it's the pandemic creep I, met we with the pandemic wall. Hey, you, you said it earlier. You just said risk reduction, right? You just have to be aware of it, right? We just have to be aware of where we're at mentally, what we need, and when we need to take breaks. We highly recommend you get yourself some Topo Chico available <laughs> all over the world in stores and stuff. I don't really know, but they're amazing. And thank you for sponsoring this segment. <laughs> I want to welcome y'all to my last tapes. I wasn't planning to do this, but sometimes life makes plans for you. you know? For everything we left, for everyone who left us, I'm thankful for my breath, even though it's hard to get up. Memories ache, some days the pain doesn't let up. I remember your face and it's enough to keep my head up. Hope we're here to embrace once the pandemic lets up. I lost a friend, diabetic, he was so young. He would have loved to see the people rising up like all around the globe. People marching for our black lives in ways they haven't since the fight against apartheid. Masked up just to go outside. We face a virus and violence. We risk our lives. If I die, I often wonder what I'll leave behind. Will the precinct burn? Will the sleeping learn? Will the world that we tried to build finally emerge like a phoenix of flight out of ashes and dirt? It's more than these words of love and of work Trying to take all the hurt and make something of worth For the young ones now who gon' grow up and search An offering from times uncertain Moments within a shift as the whole world's hurting It's a trauma that will visit you, I'm certain How we make it through is how we love, how we listen How we stay connected even through all of the distance It's imperfect and dusty as these tapes are My lost ones, I never knew I'd make it this far Well, John, I had a great time with you on the podcast today. I did as well, Amy. Yeah, we covered a lot of stuff. We did a lot, a lot of, of very 
important things. <laughs> Pretty heavy podcast today. Yeah, but you know, it's important. It's important to keep talking about this stuff. And I'm sure we didn't do it right or, you know, we said something wrong and, you know, that's okay. That's okay. The fail forward, the keep trying, the keep getting up and continuing to have difficult conversations, super important. I agree with you. I appreciate you opening up about your experiences with the Mormon church and, uh, and, and raising the boys. And uh, I think you're doing a hell of a job. Uh, and uh, about epigenetics, that kind of blew my mind. I'm glad we talked about that today. Uh, we also want to thank... Ijoma Aluo. Yeah, thank She's you. the best. She, She's she, awesome. Thanks for spending some time with us today. We really appreciate you. She, is, uh, she was just named Times... Next 100. Yeah. So congratulations. That is well-deserved. Um, and we highly recommend her books. Yeah. So so you want to talk about race and mediocre, the dangerous legacy of white male America. Amy quotes mediocre to me three or four times a day. And it and points out all kinds of things that are happening that are very relatable, that when you read that book makes sense. So couldn't recommend it enough. Um, I want to thank Gabriel Teodros. He was amazing. We have a song from his record that we're going to end the uh, podcast with, but we have some other people to thank. We want to thank Ruinous Media. Joe, Pat, and Chris. Thank you for uh, being a part of the family and uh, making sure we sound not totally insane. Uh, We also want to thank our friend Michael Lerner for the doctor and the DJ theme song. Yes, thank you, Michael. He just wrote me the other day. He was very happy we're using it. I don't think I wrote him to tell him, hey, buddy, we're using the song you made us. So a huge shout out to our neighbor and our friend. Uh, who's amazing. And uh, we thank you. Uh, tell everyone you know about this podcast. Uh, go to our website as well. TheDoctorAndTheDJ.com It's got so much stuff on it. If you like this podcast, you want to go there. I think we even have merch. It's very exciting. So go to our website as well. And uh, the song we want to leave you with is a really powerful song. I hope you'll listen to the whole thing. It's pretty amazing. It's called If They Come For Me In The Morning from Gabriel Teodros. And uh, check out his show early over at KEXP.
Hidden in pages that they wrote on in cages In coded language that raised me up Underground railroad, the starlight is us To break the walls, it all starts inside of you And don't stop till all of the bars are dust If I mysteriously die, know that my spirit would fight If I die in custody, it was not a suicide If they kill me for my voice, know that my soul is alright If they take me in the morning, it's come for you by night 